All right. This is a direct quote I heard from a pastor this week that is going to drive some of our time here this morning. And here it is. No one showed up to D-Day with a beach towel and a ducky. Come to the altar. We're done. Now, on June 6th, 1944, this is a very familiar story. I promise it's going somewhere because right now you're like, uh, where, what church am I at? June 6, 1944, a day we know as D-Day, 5,300 ships were going towards Normandy Beach, carrying around 160,000 troops, estimates that are anywhere from 2,500 to 4,000 people. Americans lost their lives that day trying to capture that beach, which they did eventually do. So that mentality of going towards impending doom is where we are going to head here in a moment. But it has this time, there's a lot going on here today, <laughs> that we also want to recognize veterans. I know we've got one, two, three, four, I, I, there's a few. So again, if you're willing to enable, if you are a veteran in this room, I want you to stand. We just want to offer a sincere thank you to you for being a veteran, for protecting our freedom. Uh, we are not here today without servicemen and women. Uh, we are very pro-veterans, uh, pro-Memorial Day, pro-Veterans Day, so we do not want to uh, forget that as well. So thank you for all of you that are in this room. Uh, we truly, truly appreciate it. So if these men were going towards a beach, why didn't they bring a towel? Why didn't they bring Because here's the thing. When my family goes to the beach, we got two children under four. It looks like we're moving there forever. And there are no stores to buy other supplies, apparently, because we've got to take it all with us. We've got sunscreen upon sunscreen. We've got sandcastle toys, umbrellas. We've got water. We've got snacks. We've got other snacks. Towels, floaties, snacks, because Nora might not want the snacks or the other snacks. So we've got to bring the other, other snacks just in case the other snacks and the snacks didn't weren't snack-tastic enough, and she will go hungry and starve to death if we're out there for four hours and she doesn't need a snack. So we got to take all of those, water, hats, books, that's for me, boogie boards for our daughter who falls sometimes walking across our living room floor, but you got to have the boogie board because, you know, she's athletically inclined enough to ride that thing. She's not. She's pretty, though. She's really, really pretty. So, and she's awesome. But... This is not the type of beach these men were going to. This is not the type of vacation these men were taking on D-Day. These were not going, men were not going to enjoy themselves. They were not going, and here's the thing, they were not going saying to each other, I hope we don't have to fight. I hope nothing bad happens to anyone. I hope this is a peaceful, easy time. No, no, no. They had been warned. They knew that there was a good chance they weren't going home after that day. And yet, onward they went. They were prepared for that. And much like the example Pastor Eric used last week of the picnic battles analogy, that sometimes we fail to recognize the seriousness of the battle that we are in when we are referring to spiritual warfare and how, how truly serious and life and death it is. This analogy helps to the fact that some of us are still hoping it won't happen. 
Some of us are still already on the ship going, I hope we don't have to fight. I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope we don't have to engage in a serious war. I hope it just goes easy peasy. Too many times we are riding to Normandy with a ducky around our waist and sunscreen on our nose like we're Gilligan. And to real soldiers, we look ridiculous. Because they know what's coming. They know that the fight is already upon us and that we are already engaged in it. It is not a, I hope I'm ready when it comes. It's already here. We're already on the shores. See, Paul was writing this letter literally while imprisoned for preaching the gospel. That was his only crime. He had probably done a few other things, jaywalking or something, but that's not why he was in jail. So it is no wonder that he also used the analogy that we are going to talk about here of the Roman soldier because he was probably chained to one 24 hours a day. And if he wasn't literally chained to one, he at least saw one walking around at all times, kind of guarding him, guarding the grounds, guarding the barracks. He saw this in action, literal soldiers all the time. So, of course, when he's thinking of an analogy, just like we do, we use something familiar. So over the next few weeks, that is what we will be talking about. You see, in America, we are free to think these things of, I hope the battle doesn't come to us. I hope the persecution doesn't come to us. I hope the spiritual warfare doesn't happen to me. Because we are allowed to live in a presumed safe place here. Yes, there is, I, I guess we'll call it persecution because I can't think of another word. But there are some things that happen to us that are unpleasant. Let's put it that way here. But it's nothing like we see overseas. It is nothing like our brothers and sisters experience on a daily basis. Because let's be honest, even the persecution we see here is a one-off. Right? It's not daily. It's not even weekly for most of us. So we are free to think, man, I hope this spiritual warfare doesn't happen to me. The problem is, is that very well may, may make us more susceptible to the wiles of the devil because he can come in a little more discreetly. His demons and his principalities and his powers and his spiritual forces and his temptations, they can come in undetected because we are in peacetime. See, we have the luxury of thinking that we are not in the battle, but let me make it as clear as Paul does and as Scripture does. If you are a Christian in this room, and really even if you're not, but especially if you are a Christian in this room, you're in it. You're in the battle. You are in the war. There is no opting out. There is no, I didn't sign up for this. You are in it. You have been drafted by the Lord to be in this time, this war time. You see, the spirit that lives inside of us that are believers cannot cannot live at peace with the powers and the principalities and the spiritual forces that we see referred to here in Ephesians 6. It's not something he can do. He can't just go, well, let's just call it a truce and, and agree to disagree. The spirit inside of us must continually wage war. And if it is inside of us, then we are also in the war. This is why the Holy Spirit guided Paul to write these words down. This is why nowhere in these verses does Paul say, if you find yourself in this battle, do these things. It's just do these things because you are in it. You can't move along and move aside and, and 
let someone else fight the battle for you. You are in it. We see Paul concluding this letter with this, and any good writer, which Paul was, you never end your letter with new information. This is not, and in conclusion, and then you throw out some brand new idea, this is what Paul has been talking about and leading up to through the whole letter. Now, it may sound different because of the language, and he's not been talking about armor and spiritual forces in that exact terms throughout the whole letter, but he has been talking about the gospel, and he has been talking about how the gospel shapes our identity in Christ, how the gospel is our identity in Christ. So here, he is just saying, hey, remember chapters 1 through 3, even though he wouldn't have said chapters 1 through 3, we put that in, but hey, remember chapters 1 through 3 where I talked about your identity? This is how it applies. This is how you live that out. This is how you do that. This is essentially what he is continuing to talk about. This armor, this equipment, this sermon, this sermon series could be summed up in one sentence. How do we apply the gospel to every aspect of our lives? Every inch of it. Every avenue of our lives. Every corridor of our heart. How do we apply the gospel? How do we live the gospel? How do we wear the gospel? That is essentially what Paul is saying in here. That in order, like we talked about last week, to come out of this battle on the right side, in order to fight from victory and not for victory, this is what it looks like. We must allow the gospel to be at the center of everything we do. Jesus must be the focal point of everything we do. Even the mundane things that you think have nothing to do with Jesus must be about Jesus. We see words describing these six pieces of armor. They're all gospel words. Paul tells us to take up the whole armor, all of it. He makes it clear in verse 13 that this is the only way we'll be able to stand firm is if we have the whole armor of God. Not one piece here and one piece there. And Today I'm going to take my shield and, well, I'll, I'll leave that at home. It's really heavy, so I'll take my helmet today. No, it is the whole armor of God all the time. It takes all of it because the devil is a very formidable foe. And it takes all of it to defeat him, even though he is already defeated. We see words like truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, sword of the Spirit. All of these gospel words, all of these gospel applications, all of these identities. We must be immersed in the gospel. We must be prepared for anything. There is no Geneva Convention here when it comes to spiritual warfare. The devil doesn't have to follow certain rules. The devil doesn't have to go, well, I can't do that because I might get in trouble later for it. He will do anything. There is no tactic that is too sinister for him. There is no strategy that is too diabolical for him. There is no scheme that he won't employ by any means necessary. He is after your destruction. He is seeking after it day after day. And again, he is not everywhere. But forces are here, there, and everywhere, kind of at all times. We don't know exactly where they are at all times. The devil is not omnipresent, but he does have his peeps, if you want to call it that. His team, his, his demons going to and fro to tempt and to destroy. And he will use any means necessary to get you off track. There is nothing that he considers off limits. We've all seen the nature shows. Won't go into great detail of the lion chasing the gazelles. Which gazelle gets eaten? 
the slow one, right? The, the gimpy one, the old one, the, the newborn one. Whichever one is in the back of the pack, you can rest assured, they're getting ready to show some carnage, and we're all going to cheer because that's <laughs> the kind of world we live in where we always want the lion, then we feel bad. We're like, oh, that poor gazelle, but we don't, we don't really care about the gazelle. This is how Satan, your weak points, he is looking for the slow gazelle in your life. Scripture reads like this, 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is how he attacks, like a lion chasing the gazelles. He finds the slow one. He finds the weak one. He finds that one small part of your heart or your life that you are for some reason unwilling to completely give over to Jesus, and that's where he's going to attack. And you may not even know it right now. You may not even recognize right now. Right now, if you're thinking, what part of my heart have I not given to Jesus? You really may not even have an answer. And the devil is smart enough to figure out that point and to figure that out. That is why we must cover our entire lives with the gospel and ask ourselves that question continually. What part of my heart today, this week, this month, this year, this season of my life, what part of my life am I kind of scaling back or holding back? What part of my heart am I not fully giving to Jesus? What are my weak points? You must be honest with yourself because sometimes we don't see them either. As your pastors, as your friends, as disciple makers, sometimes we don't see them either. Now, sometimes it is easier for the outside source, the objective source to see it, whereas you don't see it in yourselves. But you have to be honest with yourself. We see Jesus being attacked this way personally by the devil. He attacks Jesus in the desert with food because he knows Jesus is hungry, right? He doesn't attack Jesus in a way that he knows he is strong at that point. Now, what he failed to recognize is that Jesus is strong at every point at all times, but he thought, I got an end here. I know he's hungry. I'm going to tempt him with food. This is the exact same tactic he will use for us in the parts where we leave our guard down or we think, I've got this. I become complacent. Or I've already, I'm past that sin because I'm so Christian. That's where the, the devil is going to use your weak point to slither back in here. This is not always lust of the flesh in the traditional sense. This could be literally anything. This may be sexual temptation, sure. Maybe a perfect body image, money, greed, relationships, drugs. What about perfect kids? That sounds like a good thing. The devil's all willing to give that to you if that's what you want more than Jesus. Or a success in your job. Or a raise. Whatever you are bent towards, the devil and his crew want to make that as accessible and as desirable as possible even if it is ultimately a good thing. And he doesn't use the same tactic over and over. He switches gears all the time. I told Eric and Todd, we, we met earlier this, well, not this week, but anyway. And I told him, I said, I'm going to fight the urge to preach the gospel according to 80s and 90s movies because this just perfectly fits in with all the movies that I grew up kind of watching and loving. So it's, there's, there's more than just this one, so stay tuned. But there's a scene at the end of a movie called The Devil's Advocate. I do not encourage you as a Christian to watch that movie because there are other things, but I wasn't always the perfect Christian standing in front of you today, and I did watch it back in the day. I wish it was watchable because the tactics that are used in it 
are exactly the way the devil attacks. So very shortly, the movie is about how the devil disguises Al Pacino, which is maybe the most fitting casting any movie has ever done. But Al Pacino plays the devil, tries to get this lawyer to join him. Okay? He uses money, materialism, stuff, houses, all that. He moves them to New York and, and give, shows them the good life. This all could be yours. I can give it all to you. You just got to do these kind of shady business tactics and these shady courtroom tactics. Doesn't have to be exactly legal. Just don't get caught. And all of this can be yours. Then at the end of the movie, you see the main character, played by the stellar actor, Keanu Reeves. I know, he's awesome. He plays one role no matter what movie he's in, and it's this. He just says his lines, and then he moves on. But he's in it. He was... What it shows is he had gone to the bathroom during this court case. He was washing his face in the mirror, and all of this was a dream. So the whole movie, you see, he was imagining what his life would be. The devil was playing it out for him in his mind. Here's what your life could be. If you just go back in there and do this tricky thing in this court and win this way, it could all be yours, all this money and this materialism. He washes his face. He decides, I don't want that. He goes back into the courtroom, and he wins it the legal way. He wins it the right way. He does the right thing. As he's leaving the courtroom, winning this huge case, these reporters swarm around Keanu Reeves. And they're all, oh, we want to interview. We want to talk to you. Oh, tell me, tell me, how did, how did you think of that tactic? Da, 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 da. And then this guy comes up and says, I want to do an exclusive interview with you on 2020 on national TV. Just me and you. You'll be famous. And with a great smile, Keanu Reeves agrees to it, and he's walking down the stairs of the courtroom with a huge smile on his face. And then it flashes back to the reporter, and that reporter morphs into Al Pacino, and he goes, vanity, my favorite sin. It wasn't that the devil was going to leave him alone because he resisted the first one. He just brought in a whole new one, a whole new tactic, and it looked like it was going to work. Now, the movie ends. We don't know how it all ends. It's all fake anyway. But... This is what he does. The devil is not smarter than God, but he's smarter than we are. And when we think, oh, got him. I said no to that temptation. He just finds a new one. He finds a new one and a new one and a new one. This is just how he works. And he never sleeps. He never gives up. He doesn't say, all right, I guess Jesus has really saved that one. Oh, no. He will continually try. Because again, he's not smarter than God, so he, he doesn't even recognize he's been defeated. He just keeps trying to win these battles and keeps trying to win these battles. And this barrage is not always things that are blatantly sinful. Sometimes he will use massive success. Sometimes he will use good things that can be used for good. He will lure you into dependence upon yourself and not, your, not God's will, but your will. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We've all heard this scripture before. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Why is this here? Why is this all over scripture to remind us, don't rely on yourself. Don't rely on yourself. Rely on God. Lean on his understanding. Why is this here? Because we are very, very prone to make gods of ourselves. We are very, very prone to think that we have all the answers or we have the best way. I know this is God's way, but if I do it this way, it'll work out better. We're very prone to live as if it is our wills that govern our lives and our outcomes. It is said that Roman generals would have servants to follow them. 
after victories, after huge war victories, because all these people were praising them. You've seen movies where they're throwing rose petals, and they're just praising and praising these generals because they've won this huge battle. And these servants, the only job that they had was to walk around and whisper in their ear, memento, memento mori, which means remember you are mortal. Remember you will die also. You are not God. Because as they were getting all this praise, getting the big head, they had to be reminded, oh, no, no, no. Now, they weren't worshiping the same God that we were. I give you that. But the sentiment is true. We have to be reminded of that all the time, especially when things are going good, when our plans just keep working. Starts make, making us think, I got this. Look at all my plans working out. Satan and his minions will tempt you into thinking you are God. And you, won't never, you would never say that verbally. You would never say out loud, I am God. I control everything. No one would ever say that. We'll just live it out and act that way. And think we're in control of our own fate, in control of our own destiny, in control of our own outcomes. Anything to get you to take your focus off of Jesus, even if it's on to something good, he's going to do it. To worship anything but Jesus. The devil is tricky. And here's the thing, he's not even after your worship. Because he knows if he shows up with his pitchfork and his red cape and whatever else, you're not going to worship that guy. He's not after your worship. He's just after your destruction. And your destruction comes with you worshiping anything but Jesus. So it doesn't have to be him. He doesn't even care what you do or don't believe about him. You could literally be in here right now going, I don't even believe the devil exists. He's fine with that. He doesn't care. As long as he can get something to take your focus off of Jesus. We must be ready for anything. And the only way to be ready for anything is to look to the one who is the victor over everything. And that's Jesus. That's no one in this room. It's no one I can see their, your face right now. You must rely on, look to Jesus. Jesus has already won this war. So therefore, as we look at all of these things today, it is a who we are equipping ourselves with, not a what. Yes, it's a belt of truth. Yes, it's a breastplate of righteousness. But it's Jesus. It is a who, not a what. We will talk about each individual piece of armor, but Paul wants us to realize that it is not the outward armor that makes us strong. It is not a literal belt of truth or a literal helmet of salvation or any of these things. This is just Paul's way of reminding us of our identity in Christ that these things are already in your possession. They are already yours. If you are in Christ in this room today, you already have the belt, the breastplate, the helmet, the shoes. All of these things are already yours. This is how you fight in the strength of the Lord as you employ them. Not you go gather them up like it's some kind of war to Warcraft where you got to go gather this thing and take it over here to do this thing and this thing. Does anybody even know what War to Warcraft is, by the way, except Adam York? Okay. I don't even know if that game still exists, but... Any game, Fortnite, I don't know, I've never played it, but where you go gather something and do it, that's not what this is. You already have them. They're already in your satchel or whatever you carry around in those weird games. If you've ever seen the movie Troy, told you, it's movie day here at Mission Church. If you've ever seen the movie Troy, there's this scene where they're getting ready to have this battle, and you think, if you didn't know how long the movie was, you'd think, oh, this is the end. They got me. This is the climax. Then you go, we've only been here about 30 minutes, so never mind. But Achilles, right, the, the hero, Brad Pitt, is all ripped up, probably CGI, but whatever. He runs out of his tent, and he's wearing his armor, and he's going to fight Hector. 
All of y'all are like, I don't know if I've seen this movie. Hector's the one with the beard. So he comes out. They fight. It look like it. He. Oh man, it is epic. They fight. Oh 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 oh. He's gonna. No nope. He's not gonna die. Okay, he did just die. What happened here? Achilles, the main character of the movie, just died. He got stabbed. There's no way out of this. We're not watching some magical Lord of the Rings here. How did this happen? Then they take the helmet off, and it's his cousin. He looks just like him. I know. Everybody breathe a sigh of relief. Whew. We thought Achilles was dead. But it was his cousin who wanted to just end the war now because he knew if he killed the other guys or the other army's main hero that the war would probably be over. He moved like Achilles. He had learned from Achilles. He was wearing Achilles armor and using Achilles sword. And he lost and he died. This is how many of us fight. We're fighting with our own strength. We're just calling it Jesus' armor. But we're really fighting our battle our own way. We want to look like Jesus. We want to talk like Jesus. We want to say the Jesus things. And we call it the breastplate of righteousness. But we're really counting on our own righteousness. We're really counting on our own skills, our own abilities, our own wisdom. We call it Christianity, but we continually lose these battles. We continually getting our helmet taken off and revealing our true identity. It's because we're trusting in our armor and not the one who fights for us. Exodus 14, 14 says, The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. It's the Lord that is fighting for you. This scripture right here says you fight in the strength of the Lord. We must remember and relish the fact that we are weak on our own. We must boast in the fact that, yep, I can't do this. No one likes to hear that, especially the men in the room. Especially the men in the room who try to carry all the groceries in in one trip. We Weak. Do you see how many bags I draped on my arm? Dislocated my shoulder, but I got them all in here, right? We don't like hearing that. Weak. That's not a word any of us want to describe ourselves with. And J.D. Greer this week put, this is a quote that I will remember for the rest of my life because, again, I'm one of those people... I'm the dislocated shoulder. I'm carrying all the groceries. I don't like thinking of weakness. J.D. Greer puts it this way. It says, weakness is an advantage because dependence is the objective. That blew my mind this week. Because most of us say, okay, yeah, I'll admit my weaknesses when they become extremely obvious, and then I'll rely on Jesus. But the objective of this whole thing is to depend on Jesus more. How do we do that? but by being weaker and weaker and weaker in ourselves. So weakness is an advantage because dependency is the objective. Our goal should be rely on Jesus more, and then, like Paul, we can boast in our weaknesses. So we equip ourselves with this armor so that the Lord can fight for us, not us fighting our own battle. His Spirit being inside of us is what allows us to even put on the armor or gives us the armor now, I said before all of these items are accompanied with the gospel word. Obviously, this is on purpose. I don't think they're exactly interchangeable. That's not what I'm trying to say because I think God inspired every last word of Scripture to be in exactly the right place. But we are not going to focus as much on the ins and outs and getting to the muddy weed or the weeds of the belt means this. We'll talk about that very briefly. But you see, when a Roman soldier was about to head into battle... He fastened his belt first. And guess what's first? 
fastening the belt of truth. See, when a Roman soldier was about to head into battle, he's wearing, <laughs> it's his undergarment, but we call it a dress. It's just hanging down to his feet, right? How do you get that up out of the way so you can run and move and do all this? You wear a belt, and it holds it up. Then you can see, it's kind of like the capris that I get made fun of for wearing. Even though they're not capris, just pull up, whatever. Okay, I'm fastening my belt, guys. Get over it. All right, so they pull up their dress, they hold their belt, and the belt holds the sword. You got to have that. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But in other words, a soldier would never consider, never not once consider going into battle if he had time. Now, if it's an impromptu thing, but he would never consider going into battle without wearing his belt. just wouldn't happen. It would be pointless because he wouldn't be able to move as well. He'd be dead in a minute. So he would never consider this. It was foundational for battle. It held everything in its rightful place. This is true of us as well. It is silly for us to go into battle with a crafty enemy like the devil without our belt on. We must be found, founded in the truth. Now, as I read commentaries this week, they all kind of gave two options as to which one each of these mean. This could mean the truth as in the Word of God, as in Scripture, okay? Very much could be. I lean towards it's not because, one, he mentions that specifically later when he's talking about the sword of the Spirit being the Word of God. Also, in the original language, there is no definite article here, so it doesn't say fasten on the belt of the truth. He just says fasten on the belt of truth. So, I think Paul is reminding us here of chapters 1 through 3. So, in a way, he is talking about the Word of God, but more likely, he is talking about the words of God. What has God already said about you? What has God said about about the devil? What has God said about himself? We must be able to remember these words. And yes, that is found in God's word. But this is not an offensive weapon that we yield or wield against the devil like we will talk about with the sword. The belt was not an offensive weapon, but you must have it. Again, you would never go into battle without it. This is referring to what has God said about himself. What has God said about your identity? We read it in chapters 1 through 3. Those things don't change. Those things are true, and they remain to be true forever. So we must remind ourselves of this. How is, this, how is the devil described in John 8.44? It says, you are of your father the devil. This is Jesus speaking. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. How do you combat lies? Pretty easy answer. Truth. You combat lies with the truth. So not only that, but Jesus describes himself how? I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is girding yourself with Jesus. You fasten the belt of truth. You fasten the belt of Jesus into your life. He must be foundational. The things he has said about himself must be foundational. The things he has said about dev the devil being defeated must be foundational. The things he has said about you as a Christian, as a son or daughter of God, must be foundational. But we must know the true Jesus of the Bible, not the one we've conjured up or that culture has conjured up and twisted around to make it something that he's not. We must know how to speak the truth to ourselves when we doubt our identity or when the devil causes us to doubt our identity. Because ultimately, he's got many tactics. They all boil down to a basically one. Is he just makes you doubt. He just makes you question. 
What did he say to Jesus in the desert? If you are the Son of God, then this. Just trying to get Jesus to question whether he was the Son of God. What does he say to Adam and Eve in the garden? Did God really say that? He didn't tell them that he didn't. The devil never said, well, I don't say never, but at the first part, he didn't say, God didn't say that. He just asked Eve, did he say that? Are you sure? And then Eve already twisted it all up. This is Satan using the truth in a twisted manner, trying to get you to believe something that isn't. But here's the thing. If you don't know the actual truth, those twisted versions of it are going to sound pretty accurate. They're going to sound pretty true. The things he said to Jesus weren't false. They were just falsely applied. And the devil will do the same thing to us. Too many people claiming Christianity don't have their belt on. They've missed the first step of everything. The only way to know the scriptures, the only way they know scriptures is it's plastered on their wall or their mugs or grandma crocheted them a pillow. They've memorized that one because they see it every night when they take the pillow off and throw it in the floor. That's why they're called throw pillows. Right? Quick poll. And I'm, seriously, everyone in here, raise your hand if you truly believe that God's Word is true, that it is His Word, that it is His communication to us. Raise your hand. If you Keep your hand raised. Keep, everybody that raised their hand, keep it up. Keep your hand up if you've read every last word of it. It's not a guilt trip. This is an equipping. You've got to put your belt on. There's, you can put your hands down. <laughs> a recent poll showed that 75% of Americans still claim Christianity as their religion. You know what percentage also claim they've read every word of the Bible? 11 that means two-thirds of so-called Christians are going to war with no belt on. No foundation of truth. No foundation of what God has said about himself, about them, or about the devil. They have no idea even what battle they are facing. Two-thirds. This is not a guilt trip. Because if you start reading the Bible today, I'm going to read every word. Because Pastor Justin, it won't last long, I promise you. I've done it. I've guilt-ridden guilt read the Bible numerous times and I get to Leviticus or Numbers and it bogs down pretty quickly. We have to read it because we love it. It's not a guilt trip. This is to equip you. You are in a war. You're in it. You're not going to it. You're not riding the ship to the beach. You're on the beach. Bullets are flying. You are in the war and you don't have the right equipment from the get-go. We have to know God's Word. We must be equipped with the truth. Next, after having put on your belts, we take up the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this one is pretty simple. Everybody knows what the breastplate does. It protects your vital organs. It covers you from basically here to here. It hangs down actually a little farther than just your, your midriff. I was going to have a picture of this, by the way, but I looked up on Google Images, Roman soldiers. You would not believe the hokiness that took place in Google Images for a Roman soldier. There wasn't a good one at all. It's almost like they didn't have cameras back then to take a real picture. Uh, this, anyway, the breastplate was to protect the most vital organs. It is to cover the entire middle part of the soldier's body against close-range combatants, usually the short sword. But here's the thing. It only covers the front. 
We are called here, what? To stand firm, facing our adversary, because we know he is defeated. Why not just run away? Why not run from temptation? Run as far as you can, because the devil will find you. He will send one of his demons or his forces or his temptations. He will find you. Running away is a quick fix, and there are references in the Bible that we should flee certain sins, that we run away from them. Because here's the thing, if you've ever played a video game where you get shot, what do you do when you're about to die? You just go hide around the corner, right? And you're, for some reason, because they're, they're realistic, your body just regenerates, and you run back out there and shoot again, right? Oh, I'm, oh, Whew. right? Sometimes, spiritually speaking, we have to do that. Just run from the sin. Uh-oh, I'm feeling tempted. I'm out of here. But don't think that that is the ultimate fix. Because eventually you're going to get tired of running. Or eventually you're going to turn to run and run smack into another one. Right? This is not the way God calls us to fight this. He tells us to stand firm. But why? Because it's not our righteousness that we're fighting the battle with. If it's our righteousness, then yeah, I'd just run all the time and hope he never catches you. Because ultimately, our righteousness is going to give in to that temptation all the time eventually. But it's not our righteousness. Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. In the original language, that no one means no one. It is, it's nobody. Nobody in here is seeking after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Isaiah 64 tells us our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Won't go into what that is. Look it up if you want. Ask Pastor Eric if you want to. That's fine. I'm not telling you. But it's polluted garments we are offering to Jesus for our salvation. Why would we offer those? Dirty rags. Here, Jesus, here's my dirty rags. Can you save me? No. The beauty of this, it is not our righteousness. It's not even our breastplate. It is Jesus his righteousness is applied to us to protect us, to carry us into battle so we can stand firm in the face of an able, able adversary like the devil. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's, it's up there as one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. The righteousness of God is applied to us. It is upon us. This is where knowing the truth comes in because Satan will try to whisper in your ear that you're not righteous. You're a failure. You're not good enough. God could never forgive that. Nope, 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 nope. The devil will try to twist those words to tell you that you are a sinner, that you'll always be a sinner. That's the only thing God's ever going to see or know about you. And here's where the gospel of Jesus stands in stark contrast to the rest of the world's religions because we know that that is absolutely right. We admit that. You're right. I'm not righteous. I am a failure. I'm going to fail again tomorrow, even though I'm trying not to. We willingly admit our weakness if we are truly in Christ because we know that the one who saved me is righteous. We are not pointing at ourselves as righteous. We're pointing at the righteous one. The one who died in my place is perfect, devil. The one who died in my place, he lived. He never sinned. He is not a failure, devil. It is his righteousness I stand firm in, devil. So you're right. Accuse me all you want. Tell me whatever you want about me. I'm going to tell you, you don't even know the half of it. If you only knew what was going on up here, devil. There's more to the story, devil. Jesus died for it. Jesus is not a failure. 
Jesus is righteousness, and I have his breastplate to prove it. He is who makes me worthy. He is who makes me holy. He is who makes me perfect. Therefore, I stand firm in this battle against you, devil. But I stand firm in his righteousness, not my own. As we continue to get dressed in the, in the gospel, Paul tells us to put on our shoes, our readiness provided by the gospel of peace. Now, any 90s kid knows the quickest way to become a legend is to lace up a brand new pair of PF flyers and outrun the beast. That's not what this is talking about. These shoes are different. These shoes are for battle. They would have had nails in them facing downward, basically like football cleats to dig into the ground. Why? We were just told to stand firm. How do you stand firm? You dig into the ground. This helps you walk in terrain that was not exactly the easiest to walk in. It gives you a firm grip on the ground. It is often said that the sword that we will talk about in a few weeks, the, the Word of God, is the only offensive weapon we see in this list. In a way, that is correct because the shoes aren't a weapon, but they are offensive. They are moving you forward into the fray. These were not, for, these were not running shoes. These were to move you forward into battle. And here's the thing. Look what it says. You put on your shoes, your readiness provided by the gospel. Your shoes make you ready to march forward boldly because we have them on. We have the gospel deep inside of us, and we know that the gospel is true. We march forward boldly knowing that we have peace with God, right? Provided by the gospel of peace. So we have peace with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, based on his righteousness, based on that truth. All of this comes together. These are not just separate pieces of armor. They all work together. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in that peace, we can now lace up our shoes and go on the offensive. We can go into a dark and dreary world proclaiming this gospel. Even to the ones that attack us, even to the ones that are being used by the spiritual forces to come against us, we proclaim the gospel to them because that's the message that saved us and that's the message, the only message that could possibly save them. We have peace with God through the gospel and we have the peace of God because of the gospel. John 14, 27, again, top five favorite verses. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We have the peace of God to know that Jesus has saved us by standing in our place. We have the peace of God to know that his righteousness is applied to us, not our own. And that is the only way we are able to stand in front of a holy God. We have the peace of God to know that this message is what saves people, so we boldly proclaim it. We have the peace of God to know that his words will not return void, so the results are not on us. We don't have to worry, oh, I should have said it differently, or I should have said it this way, or I should have done this. It's the gospel that saves. We have the peace of God to know that the gospel is truly what Satan hates. This message is what he hates because he knows that that is what is going to defeat him. He knows that that is what is going to save people. He knows this is where peace is derived. He knows that this is the message, that this message going forth is his defeat and his de demise, therefore at all costs. He's going to try to thwart any and every attempt in sharing this good news. This is where we are like the D-Day soldiers. We must know that this may lead to our death someday. It's going to lead to persecution of any sort. 
but it may lead to persecution of the, of the utmost, being death. And yet, we know we have peace with God. We know that death is not the end. We are okay with death if it's for that reason. Because we have peace with God through Christ. But this is where the devil will start lying to you. Oh, it'll never work. Just going to say no. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to make fun of you. They're not going to be your friend anymore. It's going to be awkward. Oh, no. Not awkward. How will I ever recover from awkward? But it works. The devil uses it all the time to keep our mouths shut. We must take up the whole armor. It all works together. We must utter, be utterly immersed in the gospel. We must clothe ourselves in it. We must know the truth of the gospel that gives us God's righteousness, that then gives us the readiness that the shoes provide to go forth with our shoes on with the gospel. And then we carry our shield of faith against these accusations. It'll never work. How, how it, They'll laugh at you. All of these things. The enemy will repeatedly attack you from all angles. Deceptions, temptations, accusations, doubts, passions, lies, lusts, illnesses, deaths, job loss, bad stuff, this, that, the other. You may think there's literally millions of options here. That's why we're not going to spend time on what are the flaming darts. It could be anything. The devil will use any kind of flaming dart to derail you in the gospel. But the shield of faith, faith tells us that if I truly believe in Jesus, I am safe. It may not look safe. It may look dangerous. The flaming darts may be coming at me, and they are scary. I've never been shot with a flaming arrow. I can assume the terror that grips you as a flaming arrow is coming at you is probably pretty great. And yet we have the peace with God and the peace of God to know my faith is stronger. My faith is greater than the devil. My faith is greater than his powers. My faith is greater than sin, Satan, and death itself. So I shield myself. It is looking to Christ as the object, the giver, and the sustainer of our faith. He is our shield. He is the one that extinguishes those darts. See, what, what is it that we find in our faith? Chapters 1 through 3. It's our identity. Our identity is in Christ by our faith. Saving faith is what gives us the identity in Christ. Saving faith is what gives us our status as adopted sons and daughters. Saving faith is what gives us our salvation that blocks these arrows. He redeems us from the bondage that the devil desperately wants to keep us in. But when we are sure of our salvation through faith alone, all of the devil's accusations are deflected off or extinguished. The reason those were made of wood is so the arrow would go into it and it would put out the flame. So it doesn't deflect off and start a fire somewhere else. But when we are sure of our salvation, all of those are extinguished. They're blocked because we know the truth of our faith. They cannot get to us because we want know the one that stands in our place. 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith is stronger than the world. Our faith is stronger than the devil. But not because it is our faith. It's not because our faith is so strong. It's the object of our faith is so strong. When we truly place our faith in Jesus, that's how we know we have the shield. 
If there's anything that I can stress to you in this message and over the next few weeks is do not trust in your armor. Trust in your armor giver. Not the armor itself. Trust in the one who is your armor. We have all these tactics that we use that we think protect moral boundaries, accountability groups, discipleship meetings, Dave Ramsey budget tools, internet blockers. All of these are great. If they're working, please keep using them. They are, they are things God has placed in your life to help you. But we must remember never put our faith and trust in those things. Those things can and do fail. Jesus never does. We equip ourselves with Jesus as the only one who can sustain, who the only one who can stand this pressure, who can the only one who can carry us through the fray of this battle. As we look at these things this week and the weeks to come, truth has a name, righteousness has a name, peace has a name, salvation has a name, and his name is Jesus. So we place our faith and our trust in him and him alone. We put on the whole armor of God. We fight these daily battles knowing that the ultimate war is already won. He's already defeated Satan. He's just giving him his time for, his, for our good and his glory. We fight knowing the outcome because he has promised to love us. He has promised to keep us. This is the truth of his word. He has promised these things, and we must know it. We must not go into this battle unequipped. If you go in unequipped, you will lose. You must have true saving faith in Jesus. That is what this church will continually invite you to. Whether you are a saved believer or if you are an unsaved person in this room, we invite you to the gospel. We invite you to Jesus. We invite you to stand firm, but only to stand firm in him. Let's pray.